everybody, welcome to episode 22 of Literary Disco, the Hardy Boys edition. Today's episode in two parts. First, we will try a variation on our usual bookshelf revisit by introducing Bookshelf Roulette. Dun, dun, dun. A segment in which Todd, Julia, and I will be forced to select a book at random from our bookshelves and defend our ownership of it. Then we will discuss the first two Hardy Boys mysteries, which were supposedly authored by Frank W. <laughs> Dixon, but were really a corporate scheme devised to teach kids to stay away from hobos. <laughs> I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always, essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hi. Good evening, sir. All right, so Julia has been fast typing on Twitter, asking our Twitter followers to give us numbers in some crazy code devised from a beautiful mind. That's right. What What is this game you've devised, Julia? Yeah, what is this? It's Ryder devised it. I just collected the data. Oh, as usual, Ryder sends us down a path <laughs> of sadness and destruction that Julia and I must rescue us from. So what what is this game? Okay, so my idea was that we... We each have these crazy bookshelves full of books. Why not, rather than having us select a book that we know and love or are recently thinking about, we choose a book at random from our bookshelves and either talk about how we never read it, how we have read it and loved it, read it and hated it, or just defend why it's on our bookshelf. So that was the original idea, and um, so I thought we should get numbers in order to create a random pattern to find the book. So we asked fans for a number one through four with one being the top left corner, two being the top right corner, three being the bottom right, four being bottom left, I (laughs) guess? Right. And then a shelf, one through six, assuming we all have six shelves, I guess? We do. And then a number to move left or right on that shelf to arrive at a book at random. This is is either going to be fantastic... Or we're going to need to re-record this episode. But go ahead. <laughs> Julia, Julia, what numbers did we get? We got three. All right. So you can all go and check our Twitter feed on the day we're recording this, which is Monday, January 28th. Spoiler alert. We record ahead. Um, let's see. Uh, you know, the magic is broken because of Ryder's game. Okay. So our first number is three. So that means we're going to all go to the bottom right corner. Okay. Our, and that was from Fee Five Fo Fum on Twitter. Thanks, Fee Five Fo Fum. At Nutella Crack. Mmm, Nutella. I, I love me some hazelnut and chocolate spread, I'll tell you that. Our second number is from H. Jen Knapp, who's someone named Holly, and she says Hi, Holly. five. Thanks so much. So we're going to count five up from the bottom. Okay. And then finally, from over counting from the right over is going to be 23. And that's from at Dear Very. Yes. Okay. Okay. Break. And go. (laughs) So, starting in the bottom right-hand corner, moving up five and over 23, I landed on White Noise by Don DeLillo. Ooh, I have that book, but I have not read it. You have not read White Noise? No. All right, Todd, you've read White Noise, right? Yep. All right. Uh, White Noise, for those of you who don't know, is a book that came out in 1985. I'm getting this information right off the back of it. It was a National Book Award winner. Uh, Don DeLillo, it's an amazing book. It's actually one of my favorite books of all time. Um, And a great movie starring Michael Keaton, where voices uh, come to the TV. Different. Different. Same title. Different. Different. Same title. 
yeah, so White Noise is the story. It's it's one of like the first really successful suburban anxiety novels, right? Like um, it was a postmodern book full of all these weird things. The narrator of it is a um, a professor of Hitler studies. Right, and uh, I can't remember where it takes place. Do you guys remember? Somewhere where it in the takes Midwest, place? doesn't it? Yeah, it's like this Midwestern suburban lifestyle, and he works at this college, and his wife is secretly taking these pills, and it's a very surreal book. Um, the band Airborne Toxic Event is named after Correct. part of this book because at at, cer- at a certain point in this book, an airborne toxic event occurs with this cloud a gas cloud from like a local uh, government facility is released into the air and the whole town is evacuated. It's a very strange book, but uh, suffice to say it sort of, it ushered in a lot of, um, it's the predecessor to the corrections and Jonathan Franzen in general, I would say it's a predecessor to, um, well, I think it's a predecessor to a lot of great American fiction. I mean, it's DeLillo's early masterwork. Um, I would yeah. say. Um, and, you know, the style in which he writes it, I think, was challenging at the time in 1985. I remember I read it the first time when I was in college in a um, introduction to contemporary American literature class. And that, that was in like 1991 or something like that. White Noise is just about this family. I act- it's not a very happy novel. It's really, really depressing. Yeah, and, I mean, it's, um, it's the end of, you know, American suburban life, basically. Yeah, it's a very dark satire. Uh, another book that it reminds me of, which actually preceded it, is um, The Crying of Lot 49. Mm-hmm. The Thomas Pynchon book, yeah. They're similar in that they're kind of like these really, really smart dissections of American life that verge on paranoid and... Well, not verge on paranoid. They are paranoid. And there's always plots going on where people are trying to poison the American public or take over the world in some devious way. Um, and the narrator is kind of figuring it out and piecing the, the, the puzzle together. Really, really dark books, but funny. White Noise is really <laughs> but funny. But ha-ha, full of ha-has. <laughs> it is. It's, it, it's really funny. Um, I've never heard anyone describe DeLillo as, you know what, that guy? That's one funny motherfucker, that Don DeLillo. That guy is a, a laugh a minute. Really? White yeah. Noise is a comedy. White Noise is definitely a comedy. It's just dark. It's a tragic comedy, yeah. Yeah, but, but all this stuff is really absurd you know mm-hmm. like the the idea of like the, the most photographed barn in the world and they go to photograph it and he does that thing where the tv always talks from the other room right he's constantly like quoting commercials from the television but he puts it like it's dialogue from the other room <laughs> um yeah i mean i don't know maybe people don't find it that funny but i do <laughs> oh <laughs> maybe people don't find it funny but writer does <laughs> But that was the that was the saddest I've ever heard you, Ryder. I've heard you this sad since The Hobbit came out, and it was so disappointing. Aww. Would you guys like to hear my Russian roulette of literature? Sure. Let's go. So my book is a book called Dirty White Boys by Ooh. the writer <laughs> oh Stephen Hunter. So this is there's actually a funny story about this book. So I'm a big Stephen Hunter fan, and by that I mean I was about 20 years ago. I haven't read one of his books in years. Um, but the first book signing I ever did when my debut novel, Fake Liar Cheat, came out was with Stephen Hunter at the Mystery Bookstore in Los Angeles. And I was thrilled because he was one of my literary heroes. I get there and there's a line out the door at the bookstore and I'm like, holy shit, I've made it. 
people, even though no one has bought this book yet, have heard about me, and they are ready for me. This is what every book signing for the rest of my yeah, life is going to be, be like. a thousand people in line to see me. And so I get there, and of course, they're all in line to see Stephen Hunter. And I had brought like ten Stephen Hunter books with me because I was a big fan. And I, I didn't know they were all for Stephen Hunter at the time. We sat down behind this table, and um, the line was out the door. And I thought they were all, you know, most were going to be for me, and then he'd have one or two fans. And every single person was there for Stephen Hunter. Um, I, I mean, I had had a book signings to launch the book. This is the first book signing I had done with anyone else. Like, I had had my launch party the night before at the Bookstar in Encino. Anyway, and one of the people in line was the actress uh, Tess Harper. Um, who had been nominated for an Academy Award for Tender Mercies. And I was like, oh, I recognize that woman. How do I know that woman? And she took pity on me. And none of the people in line bought my book. But she took pity on me and and walked up and was like, oh, you know, I'd I'd be happy to buy a book. And I was like, oh, who are you? What do you do? She's like, oh, I act. I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. You're acting. You're just starting out. And she's like, no, I've been doing it for a while. And my brother and Wendy, my wife, were in the room. And they were looking at me like, you fucking moron. Do you not know who this person is? And I signed the book. Oh, best of luck with your acting endeavors. I hope it turns out. Oh, God. <laughs> you totally projected onto her where you were at. I totally you were like, did. You were starting a career, and so you totally assumed she was, too. I just assumed she was, you know, doing nothing, but she'd already been nominated for Academy Award. So at the end of the day, um, you know, I sit there, and I realize I'm nobody, and Stephen Hunter signs, like, 200 books. And... I have my stack of books for him, and I say, oh, man, it was so great meeting you, and, and what a wonderful time I had signing with you. You're one of my heroes. I'm a big fan. God, I'd forgotten about this. And he says, oh, yeah, this is great. Good luck to you. And I was like, oh, I've got these books. Will you sign them? He's like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So I give him all the books, and uh, Ryder and Julie are going to get to see this because we do our conversations on <laughs> Google Hangout. Oh, my God. I get all my books back, and they are signed to Lee. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no. He thought you were your brother. He thought that was my brother. (laughs) I love that you still have that, too, Lee. May I say, you deserve that. Oh, God. (laughs) I was so heartbroken. Too, Lee. And I have, like, seven books, and they all say too, Lee in them. Which, for longtime listeners, will remind you of the time I had Elmore Leonard sign all my books, and he signed them to Tom. Yeah, you've gotten really yeah. screwed by the whole signing thing. Authors are assholes. <laughs> that signing in and of itself, uh, I did learn something, though, is that Stephen Hunter was really gracious to everyone in line. Every single person who walked through, they had a question or they just wanted to shake his hand or take a picture with them. He was totally cool. The epitome of professional. And uh, that was that was a really good lesson for me. And Dirty White Boys is a good book. The, um, the opening line of it... Um, probably should not be read aloud. Let's see here if I remember correctly. Three men at McAllister State Penitentiary had larger penises than Lamar Pye. Uh-oh. And then it goes onward. <laughs> I don't know anything about Stephen Hunter. Who, what, what does he write? I mean, um, he's books? written a bunch of books. Oh, so there was a movie that was made out of um, his books uh, that Mark Wahlberg was in where he plays a sniper that came out a couple years ago. I think it was oh, called was Sniper or something. And it was basically based on uh, one character Stephen Hunter has. He writes sort. Of, he used to write um, military thrillers, um, and then he sort of moved into these 
dark crime fiction, I guess you'd call it. And then he also has the books about the snipers and Point of Impact and um, the second Saladin, the master sniper, uh, the Spanish Gambit. So he's most known for his books about this uh, lone sniper um, who goes around killing people for various reasons. But always a very good writer. And he's also the film critic at the, um, at the Washington Post. I think he, he might have won the Pulitzer Prize for film criticism. He taught me how to be a professional with book signing and then signed all of his books to Lee. He humbled you. He's the only one ever. Whoever brought up those numbers, thanks for bringing up that. What do you, what do you got, Julia? Okay, well, um, I have separate bookshelves for fiction and nonfiction, so I decided to mix it up and go to my nonfiction shelf. So I came up with a book that I love, which is How to Cook a Wolf by MFK Fisher. Have you guys ever read her? No. No. So she wrote during uh, World War II, and these are actually cookbooks, but the... The recipes are essentially essays. Well, they are essays. There's there's like a huge essay, and it'll end with a recipe. I can't believe more people don't do that, by the way. That's such a cool idea. That is yeah. a cool idea. I've never heard of that, but that makes so much sense to be like, here's the story behind this recipe. Or is, is that what she does? Well, it or? depends. So this particular one is um, the reason it's called How to Cook a Wolf is it's about um, how to cook using wartime rations and so it's all oh, about hunger that's badass yeah it's it's awesome yeah. it's it's all about hunger and how to feed your family on nothing and starvation and how to make the most of the little that you have um so it's a laugh riot oh it is hilarious <laughs> it's like the hunger games but true <laughs> it's, it's as funny as white noise let's put it that way. i tell you what it's like dirty white boys in, in regards to the large penises at the penitentiary so um all all of the essays in this particular one start with how to so it one of them is how to boil water how to distribute your virtue how to catch the wolf which is how to like nail down your hunger as i remember how not to boil an egg so i have all these passages marked so i'll just open to one um Let's see. Um, The main trouble with it, as with any enforced and completely simple diet, is its monotony. It must be considered, then, as a means to an end, like ethyl gasoline, which can never give much aesthetic satisfaction to its purchaser or the automobile it is meant for, but is almost certain to make that automobile run smoothly. So Hmm. that must be an essay. I can't really remember. I read it so long ago about, you know, eating just to survive. But the the very – throughout, there's all these ones – let me just look at the titles here about hunger. So how to catch the wolf, how to carve the wolf, how to lure the wolf, how to drink the wolf. Um, those are all mm. about if your family is starving, how to, how to feed them. So how to it's drink really the wolf. Yeah. So it, it's really, really a wonderful book. She's written many. When books. did it come out? 1942. I've never heard of this. Never this heard of it. Awesome. Basically it's like Martha Stewart writing at plus Julia Child writing about tragic times. Plus Survivor Man. It's it's wonderful. It's a really good book. She has a whole series of them, um, but this is the only one I've ever read. And I wrote all over it looking at it now for this, so I must have loved it. M.F.K. Fisher. Great. And my book was uh, by Stephen Hunter. And what, what was your book? Don 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 DeLeo. Don DeLillo. White Don noise. Delio. Don. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that was pretty successful. Well, I th- yeah. we'll let the listeners decide. I mean, if the listeners like me stumbling upon 
something I'm going to be in therapy for for the next 20 years. Yeah. I mean, it was successful. Basically, it's just like bookshelf for a visit, except we're not prepared. <laughs> not that we prepare for the bookshelf for a visit, everybody, in case you're curious. At least Julia doesn't. I do. Uh, yeah, at least Todd yeah. doesn't. Is real. Well, I think, you know, I think the, the great joy of this show is that I'm going to have to talk about a book if we do the roulette. That it forces me into speaking about a book. Well, you still manage to talk mostly about about me, about my favorite in topic in relation to this book, right? As opposed to right. What and the I book did is. manage to get something. Do we know what offensive. the book is about? Did we ever get to what the dirty white boys is about? I mean, do you even know? I mean, it takes place in a penitentiary, and there are penises involved. That's all we know. Yeah, I read the book. It it involves three convicts who escape from a maximum maximum security prison. He's reading the back with of the guile, book. fury, and surprisingly <laughs> fine manners. They slash and shoot their way through Oklahoma and North Texas in a frenzy of violence, madness, and murder. And they're having a damn good time. All right, stick around when we tackle the Hardy Boys. Welcome back to Literary Disco, everybody. Uh, now we are going to take a trip down memory lane for me. Um, when I was a child, and my brother and I couldn't get to sleep, uh, my father, King Strong, would sit down and I read... your other father. Yeah. And he would read to my brother and, and me books that he had read when he was a kid. Hardy Boys books. And I think we made it up to, like, Hardy Boys number 30-something. Uh, and I couldn't remember if these books were any good. But we decided, since we had done Sweet Valley High, mm-hmm. that we should take a look at the masculine side of the equation. Not that those girls weren't a little manly, quite frankly. No, they were. <laughs> so, for today's episode, we read the first two Hardy Boys adventures. The Tower Treasure, which is Hardy Boys adventure number one. And The House on the Cliff, Hardy Boys Adventure number two. And by uh, we read two, what Ryder means is Ryder and Julia read two books. Yeah. I Todd, only read the... F- I, I messed up. We Sorry. will dramatically explain the plot to you later. I, I cannot wait to hear it, and I, I hope it doesn't ruin the third book. So the Hardy Boys are supposedly written by Franklin W. Dixon, but that is a completely made-up name. Uh, It's actually more of a uh, corporate entity. I am literally just reading this from the uh, Wikipedia page. It was created by Edward Stratemeyer, founder of the Stratemeyer Syndicate, a book packaging firm. Uh, And believe Mm. it or not, these books started in 1927. Unbelievable. Which is crazy. I don't think um, any of the original text of those earlier editions are still being printed, though. They were revised uh, later in the 50s. So what we have actually read are revised editions of the first two books. Uh, they were revised to take out words that were too advanced, vocabulary-wise, hmm, and uh, racial and ethnic stereotypes. Are, wait, are you sure they were revised? Because yeah. there, there's some stereotypes, but there's also, wouldn't they have taken out the pedophilia? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> uh, Okay. Whoa. We'll get to that, I guess. Wait a minute. Where are you finding pedophilia? I oh, don't we'll find get to, um We'll get to the overt pederast angles of the Hardy Boy adventures. And if they took okay. out some racial stereotyping, what the hell was that that I just read left in? <laughs> so the Hardy Boys books all follow Joe and Frank Hardy, two high schoolers. I, I guess they're 18, right? They're 18? Right. 
Um, Old enough to have pretty badass motorbikes. I just wanted to say that until I read this, I was under the impression that they were approximately 11. That's what I thought, too. (laughs) That's what's crazy to me is that because my dad was reading this to me when I was, you know, five or six. And in my mind, they were my age or like 12. So all this time when I started reading the book, I was like, they're 18. I'm like, oh, they're kind of just. Adults. They're riding around on fucking yeah. motorcycles. Yeah. What's even happening? These guys yeah. are amazing. All right, let's go on. I, I, I was under the impression that they were the same age as Encyclopedia Brown, which is right. Like That's what my impression yeah. was too. But they're not. They're not kid no. detectives at all. They're teen detectives. They're teens. So they're 18, yes. 17 ish. They're brothers. They're virtually indistinguishable from one another, Joe and Frank. <laughs> Uh, and then their uh, one dad, is dark. One is yeah. dark. One is dark, and one is one, fair. One's got a touch of American Indian in him. And <laughs> their father is Fenton Hardy, which is one of the greatest names in all of literature. Fenton Hardy yes. sounds like an ice cream parlor in Hayward. Or a disease. Doesn't it sound like some kind of tooth decay? Uh, Ooh, I'm seeing lots of what, Fenton Hardy happened, in there. What happened to Ryder Strong? Oh man, I heard he died of Fenton Hardy's. Oh yeah, that's what I heard. So Fenton Hardy is an internationally known detective. Everybody knows Fenton. He's world famous. Uh, they their their mom is Laura Hardy, I think is her name. Mrs. Hardy. Let's just call her Mrs. Hardy. That's and, all she uh, is. Let's that's get all real. she is. She makes sandwiches. Period. <laughs> period. Um, and the boys, the boys. It is really awful. No, I'm laughing because at one point I underlined it. She just uh, like her only line in the second book is, "See any smugglers today?" <laughs> So, so the boys consistently find themselves uncovering <laughs> mysteries that their father then gets somewhat involved in. Right. Uh, and there's the local chief of police. Great parenting. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put my sons in the face of danger. Great, yeah. great dad. No, they um, want to do it. Come on. The, all the books take place in the town of Bayport, which is in New York, right? Or is it like upstate New York? We don't know where it is. It's know. on a coast somewhere. But they go to New York City in the first book. Mm-hmm. But they have to fly there. But it's presumably <laughs> a short flight because it's like they fly there back in like one day. It's definitely New England. They say it's in yeah, New England. Yeah, it's a New Englandy town the on the coast. The sense of time and space that exists in a Hardy Boys book is truly transitive. You can be in one place in one sentence... And the next day in an entirely other place at the end of that sentence. There's so many funny things about this book. But what I learned is that there was a time when someone would say, I'm going to New York. And then they would find a man who remembered every wig he ever sold. I know. I love the well, let's talk about the city of Bayport for a second. Oh, the God. town of Bayport, which is a remarkable town. It's, it's on the coast. It has incredibly rich people with huge mansions and yes. forty thousand dollars worth of jewels. Forty thousand dollars worth of jewels in nineteen twenty-seven, by the way. Oh my god! Uh, people ride around in hot rods. It has three wig shops, three costume shops in the town of Bayport, <laughs> which is remarkable to me for a small town. Right. And these are all within like a five-minute drive of each other. A farmhouse, a main street, like a main city with a jail, a, a mansion. <laughs> And innumerable trap doors. Oh my God. <laughs> There's not a regular door in the place. Every door there's is a trap door. There's lots of drug smugglers. There's a railroad. It, it's there's a lot going on at Bayport. There's a there's an underground lair that pirates built, right. but only one family knew about it. I love I love that. Like, have you noticed that the problem? The well, Todd, you wouldn't because you didn't read the second book. But in both books. 
pretty pretty awful about redheaded people. People yeah. that have red hair like, are, oh are, are evil. <laughs> it's a like red re- wig. Ooh, it's it's I it's sold a red wig in twenty years. <laughs> The hair fibers matched exactly. But then in the second book, there's like two evil redheads that they have a conversation with. And they're like, the surly redhead looked at the Hardy Boys. You're like, what is the deal? These are all villains, all these redheads. You know what? Ginger violence has got to stop. It's got to stop. I think it's worth, I mean, let's compare it to Sweet Valley High in some ways, though. Because this book is not nearly as bad as the Sweet Valley High books. No. No. I think these books are actually, I mean... They're just kind of dumb. Let's be honest. Like they're not—they're not nearly as offensive or or um. They're—they're they're kind of. I—I I was surprised at how valueless they were. Like they don't yeah. really stand for anything. Like the Hardy Boys themselves are not very smart. They're not—they're just kind of lucky and plucky. They just kind of were like, let's go investigate. And you're like, well, maybe you should call the cops instead. But they just run in. But that's about it. Like there's nothing. I... Totally agree. I so I had never encountered these books before, and I just instantaneously started feeling jealous. They, <laughs> of, you know, the difference between the male and female experience. Like, there's no right. pouting around in front of a mirror, pinching your fat leg. Right. Which is how you know, Sweet Valley right. opens. And let's reiterate. That's, ex- begins, that's right. the first sentence is right. looking at herself yeah. in the mirror. Right. But it immediately begins with two badass 18 year olds on their on motorcycles. On their motorcycles. And there's a missing jalopy. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I've never said these words before as it relates to Sweet Valley High. The Hardy Boys books are not as emotionally or narratively nuanced as Sweet Valley High. <laughs> No, they're not. They're, they're very not straightforward. And and I guess what, what was a bummer to me was that the mysteries are so stupid. They're, like yeah, they're I horrible. wouldn't even call these mysteries. No. I would call it adventure. They're adventure. Yeah. That's right. That's right. They're yeah. not really mysteries at all. But I didn't realize this this syndicate, the Stratermeyer or whatever, the syndicate, they, they created Nancy Drew in response to the popularity of the Hardy Boys, which hmm. for some reason I thought maybe the Hardy Boys were after Nancy Drew because I feel like Nancy Drew is more popular, but maybe I'm crazy to think that. Um, I don't know. I yeah, They're probably about the same. Okay. I don't know. But I, I've never read Nancy Drew, but I assumed that Nancy Drew is about how smart she is and how clever. Mm-hmm. And these guys are just... Yeah, they're they're more like action stars. You're totally right. It's more like you know young Bruce Willis and a, you know they're just like <laughs> let's go into that building. They just tear into it and they thank God your gymnastic teacher taught you how to hang and swing. Right. It became really. It feels like somebody took a manual of what boys liked in 1927 right. and just like there's weird asides <laughs> about technology and how um, magicians do things mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. not as relevant as. It would sound. It's just like, oh, here's how a telescope works. Oh my God, you look at one end, and there's two lenses, and wow. And it just, right. it's so <laughs> wow. hilarious. Yeah, you started to send it in the 1930s voice. Hey there, buddy. That's uh, a camera. I, I, I want to wow. bring back the word chum, by the way, after reading this book. I want to call you guys my chums. Hey, chum. Hey, chum. And then instead of swearing, they say, good night. Oh, there's, I love there's that a one. wonderful moment where um, I won't ruin the, the book for anyone, uh, but. Where uh, the mystery has been solved, and a character refu- refers to money as bucks, and someone says, "You can't use that kind of slang around here." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we should probably say what the uh, the, the basic stories. plot of the first book is. So the first book, um, <laughs> the Hardy Boys uh, are on their badass motorbikes, and a jalopy screams by them and almost knocks them over, and they say, "That guy's crazy." 
And then, and this is and when I say then, I mean the next line. They they run into their friend uh, Chet. Isn't that his name? I have a mm-hmm. lot to say about Chet. Yeah, Chet's a Chet, Chet's a, a, a recurring character. Apparently, Chet's an interesting, interesting. <laughs> Let man. me tell you how everything you need to know about Chet. He likes to eat. Exclamation point. <laughs> the important thing to know about Chet is Chet is also the beginning of the. Um, the homosexuality and pedophilia angles that exist in this book. What are he you talking about? He has a yellow jalopy that he calls the queen. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Really? Really? <laughs> okay. As opposed to... Hold on. You can't... Because, like, Sweet Valley actually had legitimate date rape in it. This does not have any pedophilia or, like... Uh, <laughs> there is a scene when they're in the costume shop and the, the weird costume guy has them in the back of the shop and having them put on outfits for him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is weird. That, that, that's that, a little that creepy, right? I don't, I don't know what you did when you were a kid. Well, maybe, I, maybe you <laughs> yeah, did this. Yeah, Who we, knows? I forget where that resolves. It's like, as long as you're here, I got a huge yeah, shit as long as you're costumes. Here, I can only get an erection if I see young boys in skeleton <laughs> costumes. Would you guys mind putting it on? Yeah, why so, do they put on those costumes? It makes no <laughs> for no, no good I, I reason. No, Does it no, ever pay no. off? I'm trying no. to remember. I remember what the reason is. The reason is that whoever makes the costumes always gets the sizes all wrong. Right. So okay, but... but, but, but oh. <laughs> okay. The, the reason but I think is this the goes to shop no, owner likes this, boys in costume. This go, no, I think this goes to Julia's point about you know this is like a checklist of every little boy's dream of like yeah. oh and then I get to try on a cool costume, <laughs> a skeleton. Yeah, we get to be a skeleton and then we jump back on our motorcycles and we go down to the railroad tracks <laughs> and then we go up to the tower. Yeah, it's and they're, yeah. they're on a treasure hunt. That's literally what happens in this story. Like because uh, the rich guy in town. Right. His jewels go missing. So the, the car, the Chet's jalopy is stolen. At the same time, a uh, a a mansion has uh, a bunch of money and title documents <laughs> stolen from a safe. And they immediately assume it's one of the Hardy Boys chums' fathers, Mr. Robinson. And oh, it, that guy. immediately descends the Robinson family into uh, despair and the poorhouse and. Well, which is a very clear example of the difference between this and Sweet Valley High, in that the Hardy Boys are on the side of the poor people. Right. And... They aren't afraid of poor people like in Sweet Valley High. They're so supportive of their their chum, uh, whose name is is I'm blanking on at the moment. But you know the whole his family is like this really noble poor family, and he wants to go to college, and now he's not going to be able to go to college. So actually, when I said that these books are valueless, I was forgetting that whole aspect, which which I found, you know, there's a moral backbone to this story for sure, which is that you know this rich guy instantly assumes it's one his one of his servants, and it wasn't, and he refuses to believe that you know the police are investigating this correctly, and it's up to the Hardy Boys to to come to the defense. And his poor old servant. Mr. Robinson just wants to grow exotic flowers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, right. yeah, there's, there's no overt um, 1950s possibly gay stuff in this. None at all. Can we speak momentarily? I want to get back to Chet, but I would like to note the hobo interlude. Hobo oh, joke? Hobo yes. Interlude. Can yeah. we, can we Another read it? section where the Hardy Boys are almost raped. Yeah, let's... Um, let's- Let's read the hobo interlude. Yeah, what page uh, is it let's on? get to that. One it's moment, on page one sixty-nine. Oh, they call me Hobo Johnny. All right. Yes. There we so, go. Okay. The paragraph before that. Okay. So I'll read that, and then um, Todd, you're gonna be 
both Joe and Frank and Ryder's going to be Hobo Johnny, okay? Okay. Here we go. All right. And scene. He picked up the bag and was about to hoist it to his shoulder when both boys heard a sound on the roof of the tower. They looked up to see an evil-looking, unshaven man peering down at them. Halt! He ordered. Who are you? Frank asked. They call me Hobo Johnny. <laughs> the, man, <laughs> the man replied. This here is my quarters and anything in it belongs to me. You got no right in my room. You can't take anything away. And thanks for finding the wad. I never thought to look around. Joe, taken aback a moment, now said. You may sleep here, but this is railroad property. You don't own what's in this tower. Now go on down the ladder so we can leave. So you're going to fight, eh? <laughs> Hobo Johnny said in an ugly tone. I'll see about that. Without warning, the trap door was slammed shut and locked from the outside. Let us out of here. <laughs> so Hobo Johnny just locks them in the tower and disappears. <laughs> That's Walks why I off. call it the hobo interlude. It's like there's no reason except for there yeah. to be a hobo. But if you think about it, it's 1927, which is kind of crazy because in 1927 there were motorcycles and like 18-year-olds running around on motorcycles and jalopies. Like, uh, it seems I really know. early for a lot of these things. But I don't know. It's so I weird totally for agree. me to read these books because... So my dad would read them to me, and my brother and I are only 18 months apart, and my dad and his brother had been only 18 months apart. My dad had read all these books. So somewhere in my, like, five-year-old, six-year-old brain, like, this was my dad and his brother, like, growing up. And so, like, you know, there's all that kid confusion between, like, my dad's childhood and the Hardy Boys. So, like, somewhere in my mind, my dad actually lived all these adventures. And, um... Yeah, and I think my well, brother and I like awesome. ran around awesome. the woods pretending that all of these things were, you know, happening to us. Uh, okay, so I totally well, get the excitement of these books for kids. Let's go to Chet. I just yeah. want to say something. Okay. Okay. This is on behalf of Samwise Gamgee and It's, it's okay to be fat, Chet. No, that's no. not what I have to say. Okay. But that's okay. true also. Now, our listeners can't see me, but I feel like when they're describing these 1920s chubby boys, like, that approximately matches my hot physique. <laughs> and they No, because they're, like, when you see movies and stuff, they're not, like, obese. They're not, like, 300 pounds, you know? No. They're just, like, a little bit chubby. And right. I just want to say that these people do not constantly have a cookie in their hand. <laughs> it literally says he is rarely seen with a Without cookie food, in his yes. hand. But even weirder to me is is Mrs. Hardy, whose only job is to serve them sandwiches. <laughs> Mom, we think we have a lead on this real-life criminal who's in New York City, who's an ex-con. He's been hit by a train, and he's in a hospital in a coma, and Dad's going to go talk to him. But we think we have a lead on where his treasure is, and she He's like, well, let me make a sandwich for you boys. It'll be a picnic. <laughs> Come on, Mom. Like, well, but hold on. Can we, can we also discuss for a moment that Chet, there, there, there's a shakedown by an adult of Chet for money to, for the location of his stolen car. So there's a, there's a competing yeah, PI Smith. in the in the city of Bayport who tries to shake down Chet for 25 large. And by large, I mean $25. For um, the location of his ride. And he threatens him over the phone. I mean, it's, what kind of city is Bayport? 
where these people are shaking down kids for information about their stolen vehicles. But Multiple private kids. detectives in Multiple. competition with each other. <laughs> and local cops are so ineffectual that they have they to... Need two 18-year-old they need boys to have to two 18-year-old off. boys with their fat friend Chet and his omnipresent cookie to find literally horrible criminals in the city. But back to the food issue. In the second book, in the second book there is this bizarre section where they're, they're trying to find smugglers and they're in a boat like a little dinghy with an outboard motor because they have this guy named Tony who's like a local boating guy taking them out and they're in a dinghy in the ocean trying to find a smuggler's cove and they, they found a tunnel and then they take a break and they're like man a biscuit would really be good right now. And Tony goes, well, good thing I thought to bring these. And it's like a page description of him bringing out sandwiches for all the boys. Why? Did somebody in the, the, the firm that created the Hardy Boys say, like, well, they have to make sure they get three square meals in every book. This, all this effort dedicated to making sure that these growing boys eat. Wait a minute. They're catching drug smugglers. And then, yeah, and then, uh, so their dad, in the second one, their dad is missing for a grand total of, like, a day and a half. He's been kidnapped. Um, and after two days, it says, the boys were shocked at the change in their father's appearance. Normally a rugged-looking man, Fenton Hardy was now thin and pale. His cheeks were sunken and his eyes listless. I just, it was so funny. And then, uh, here's another food thing. I just... I thought this was absolutely hilarious. I mean, it's like, you know, obviously they're, they need a convenient time for the Hardy Boys to go rescue their dad, but it says, so these smugglers have a gun and they're in a cave that no one has ever found and they want to kill this man. So one of the smugglers says, Chief, shall I give this guy the works? One of the smugglers asks. No, the leader answered quickly. None of that rough stuff. We'll do it the easy way. Starvation. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing easier than having someone waste away for three months. Right. That's the, the quickest way to get an answer. If you want Take to kill someone. <laughs> you know what I like? In, in the first book, um, so the Robinson, Mr. Robinson is, is falsely accused. I won't ruin the mystery. He, he is falsely accused. And the whole course of the book takes just a couple days. But there's this great moment where Frank and uh, his number one gal pal, Callie. Um, Who he's often are, dated. He keeps referring to the girls who do nothing in the story, by the way. No, the girls are always there, like with Chet, and it's like, and it describes him as get your cookie out of your hand. You just almost ran over me with your car a second ago. And he's like, I'm right here eating a cookie, it wasn't me driving. She's like, I guess. There's also, though, some great stuff about the nature of criminals. For instance, the smarter (laughs) crooks are, the harder they fall. What did that mean? I underlined that no too, idea. and I put a question: about, the smarter they, the harder they fall. Like, what, I don't understand. I don't understand what that, quite, how that works. It doesn't really. They don't. I mean, there's no Sherlockian moments. You know, they're not. They're never figuring anything out. L- let's just call it what is they. These these kids are are like they have brain injuries. They are functionally basically like they grew up in an iron lung. They they have the street smarts of. Of a potato bug. Uh, but guys, you know what they are? You know what they really are? According to page 142 of The House on the Cliff, What's they that? are live as Indians. <laughs> I know. I saw that too. Oh, I was like, ooh. ooh. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I would hate to read the original uh, non-edited versions for 
racial I and ethnic stereotypes. Whoever edited this left that in. That's yeah. that's hard to imagine. They also don't go cheap on the adverbs in this book. Oh, he no. said perplexedly. Well, there's never they can no one can ever just say anything either. It's that classic problem of he exclaimed, he asked, she right. reported. Like everything is you can't just say something. I do now have a, a new way of describing myself when I feel like I'm no good, and that's I feel like a dud rocket. But here's the thing, I I really sincerely enjoyed reading this. I feel like it so predates the stereotypes or it made the stereotypes in a way that does truly feel sincere. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's many times where um, something so exciting is happening that it is italicized and then ends with an exclamation point. And it is it is honestly a delight to, to see that. It doesn't feel stale or... I mean... I very rarely laugh out loud at books, and I really, really laughed. At some, I can't. I wish I could remember what it was, but it really made me laugh. And I thought they, it was very sweet. And they're—I mean—they're not overly simple either. A lot of stuff happens. A lot of telescopes right. are dro- uh, dropped. <laughs> a lot of cars are hidden in forests. A lot yeah. of cars are repainted to be another color. Like the, right. the, really, a lot of details are happening as opposed yeah. to. A sweet valley. The, the the two areas where this book is lacking is story and character. Yeah, character <laughs> is. I, there's a, there's definitely plot, right? I mean, there's yeah, definitely there's things moving plot. forward, but there is no character. I mean, there's no. just no sense of of these boys or their father, for that matter, or their mother. Like, the, you know, and Chet is uh, is an eater. That's too bad because you think about iconic characters. I don't know, Superman or, you know, this, the Hardy Boys could be up there as far as like an American classic iconic set of characters, but they're just not. I mean, they're, they're the idea of boys on an adventure that is classic and that's become, you know, a known trope, but these boys in particular, there's nothing about Joe and Frank that you care about or that you know. And I think it's, it's the very nature of how they were created. It's, it's a, you know, it's, they're like making a, a ding dong or a right. ho you know it's a corporate it's a corporate land yeah right. it's and it's so that the the young reader the kid can put him or herself if a, if a girl's reading this i can't imagine that they were into the shoes of these characters without having to be weighed down by whatever issues they might have they can just be frank or joe you know right which is exactly what i did <laughs> yeah yeah and it's not yeah i mean you're right it's it would feel easy to draw a line between Tom Sawyer and these mm-hmm. kids, but you just can't. I mean, Tom Sawyer is so real as mm-hmm. a human being that I that didn't even occur to me that, you know, to think of them in the same realm or genre. Yeah. You know what uh, is interesting, though? What I recall about the TV show in the 70s, and I might be com- completely wrong, is that the TV show was dark. Like, they were battling important things. Parker mm-hmm. Stevenson and Sean Cassidy were. Um, but I'm sure that's not true either. But Well, they that, get pretty intense in here. I mean, the first one is, is, is more contained, but the second book does involve drug smuggling and this international... I mean, and people die, which I was surprised by. Yeah, you know? someone I mean, dies in the first bit, book. Right, and I mean, Hobo Johnny shows up and locks the kids <laughs> and, in the tower. It's pretty the, intense. That's not I wasn't like expecting the Hobo stuff. Johnny ass rape. That was, uh, that yeah. was a surprise to me. <laughs> you, know, you know what these books are? They are Scooby-Doo. Yes. But, yes. but the only character in it is Fred. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like well, friends. Fred and Scrappy. 
There's a bunch of friends. But there's no comedy, and right? I mean, Scooby-Doo always yeah. had this tongue-in-cheek comedy element. Right. This is no yeah, right. Scooby-Doo is all character. It's it's amazing when you think about this dumb cartoon and how resonant those characters, you know, still really are. People really have affection for Scooby and uh, Shaggy. What else do we have to say about uh, these fine young Hardy Boys? Other than um, clearly, there's there's some psychosexual tension between both of them as brothers too. I think the names of the characters are notable. Mm-hmm. The names yeah. are incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone says at some point in the second book, "Sure is my name Snatman." It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite a statement. Yeah, it's very Dickensian, you know, Oscar yeah, yeah. Smuff. Heard Applegate. Yeah, you know Oscar Smuff isn't like evil, but he's just sort of a schlub and no right. one, yeah, he's just a loser. And obviously. then there's the in the first book, the criminal who dies isn't his name is Jackley. Just right. call him Crook. Right. <laughs> Red headed Jackal. <laughs> <laughs> I think though that their depiction of um, what it's like to be a detective is pretty much right on. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think these kids, they're, they're going to open up their own CSI lab above the garage with their reward money in the first book. I think that's a great idea. Well, um, OK, here's a question, a sincere question. Do you think that these reflect any kind of resonant boyhood? You know, does this ring true to you as like a young boy wanting to get into adventures or? Yeah, I think it's I think it's wish fulfillment. I mean, there's this moment where they're describing um, all the things that are going to happen if they can if they can solve this crime. It's near the end of the first book. They they they've stumbled upon the secret and the brothers say it'll clear Mr. Robinson. We will earn the reward by ourselves. And then the other brother says, best of all. Dad will be proud of us. Right. And it's like, you know, it's this really sweet, like, they just want to be detectives to make their dad proud of them. Um, I think that there's so much, like, especially in the first book, there's so many, like, boyhood ideas that are, you know, like, they have to dig for treasure. There's a railroad involved. There's a visit to the big city. There's disguises and, you know, putting on wigs and... All you have to do is, like, figure out, you know, which way the red-headed guy went and you solve the crime. It's all so, it's so basic. The idea of the mansion on the hill that you have to sneak into at night. It's exactly what I wanted to be living, you know, and which is why these books are so popular. Um, and they're just, they're generic enough. You know, they're just generic enough. I will totally read these to my sons if I have sons. They're, I don't have a problem with them the way that I did with Sweet Valley High, you know, where I, th- I thought stuff was genuinely disturbing. Except for the... I, we should write a spin-off book about Mrs. Hardy and her rich emotional and intellectual life. I, I don't know. I'm, I find the city of Bayport a horrifying place where the local law enforcement has to depend on two young boys uh, in a wig shop to solve their crimes. Um, I, I, mean, I mean, yeah, it's charming and it's, it's funny. But what, if you're reading this to your child, what are you teaching them? That the police are ineffectual? That you shouldn't trust the government? I, I think this is a communist book. Todd, every single noir or P.I. or Sherlock Holmes or Hardy Boys book is based on the idea that the police are idiots. That's one of the greatest, you know, parts Standing, of American yeah. literature. Mm-hmm. Is the police are idiots and some rogue detective has to come in and be more intelligent than they are yeah well i think that's anti-american well (laughs) fine then leave (laughs) you don't like get the hell out 
I think uh, I think the next thing we're going to have to do is we are going to have to read a Nancy Drew book. I mean, we, we need to find out what Nancy Drew knows and when she knew it. And that'll do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss Pulphead, essays by John Jeremiah Sullivan. Follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Thanks for listening.